Good evening. Whenever Good Friday comes to us, there's a face that my oldest son, Trent, made when he was a, uh, four or five years old at the time, I think, that I'll never forget. It's what I think of every time, this time of year. Uh, and at that time, we had this bedtime routine. Many of you do this too, where we would read a, uh, a chapter in a book before he went to bed. And the rule was that we, uh, we would only read one chapter because he would let us read all night long. And he'd probably stay awake for it too if we let him. And like many of you have done, we were reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And if you're familiar with that story toward the end of the book, a hero character, Aslan the Lion, uh, makes an impossible choice. And it's because of his love for the boy Peter Aslan offers himself as a substitute for Peter. Peter deserved punishment. There was no getting around that. But instead of letting the punishment come to Peter, Aslan the lion offers himself. And the punishment Aslan suffered was death. And I'll never forget the face that Trent made, visibly capturing such sadness in the way only a little child can when he learned that Aslan had died because he had become attached to Aslan. But as long as Aslan was alive, there was hope. And if he's dead, how does a story like this end well? And the question for me became, do I just this once break the rules and read the next chapter before Trent goes to sleep? You see, what I knew, and what many of you who have also read these books know, that Trent didn't know, was that Aslan comes back to life again. And his resurrection is the key. It's the answer to the end of winter. The end of a tyranny of an evil ruler. And to the flourishing and joy of all who live there. Do I let Trent? Stay up and hear the story that ends well, or do I ask him to sit in the tension of disappointment and confusion that surrounds this death? That's the question. This Good Friday service, we're doing what we do every year. We're retelling the story of Jesus' death. We're reading the scriptures that lead us through that story. Uh, We are singing songs with plaintive lyrics And this is hard work. There's sadness behind this work. It requires courage to do this work. And you might ask the question, and I think it would be a fine question to ask. Why, if we know that Sunday is coming, that the resurrection of Jesus is actually on the very near horizon, why do we spend such time and sit in the tension of the sadness of Good Friday? The first reason we do this is because when we look at these stories, we are bearing witness to Jesus' willingness to endure the agony of this day. There is no account anywhere in the stories of Jesus' life where he was compelled to do something he did not want to do. The Gospels don't allow us that. Jesus doesn't walk into rooms by accident. He talks to the people he means to talk to. 
and the shouts of an angry crowd are not more powerful than Jesus. There's a story in Luke chapter 4. It's early in Jesus' ministry where he was completely rejected by his own hometown. And as the story went, he was in the temple teaching and showing the people that he was the fulfillment of all of God's messianic promises. That he was responsible for bringing sight to the blind and for preaching good news to the poor and his own hometown. People that knew him since he was young got riled up and angry with him. Because to them, this was blasphemy, a sin punishable by death. And so they surround him and they move him toward a cliff. And right before they throw him off the cliff, what does the passage say? It says that he merely passed through him and he just went on his way. So when you look at these stories that inhabit a kind of pain... I also want you to see that he did this on purpose. That every step on this awful path was taken by choice. And this tells us something important because when you are looking at his willingness to endure, you are also looking at the heart of Jesus who loves his people very much. That any concern he had for himself was displaced. By his love for you. Why did he do this? And you really have to hear this. He did this because he was bound by a deep love for his heavenly father. And he did this because he was bound by a deep love for you. His people. If Jesus is our substitute. Then the path he takes was the one that was meant for us. It's the path of judgment we deserve because the sin in our lives is real. And the only way that we can find any comfort in the words of grace that we just claim to ourselves, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus as if Jesus walks this path for us. And if that's true, then these stories are so much more than a picture of agony. These are the movements of love compelled by the Savior of love in order that you might be set free to a life of love. In 1 Corinthians, we're told that he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became the thing that our lips tremble to name. And more than that, he was clothed with the weight of something that he was completely opposed to in order that you... And I will one day bear his robes of righteousness before God the Father. And listen, I know you know. I know you know what it's like to suffer. And I know you know the weight of loss. And of grief. And of sadness. And the trials of sickness and frail bodies. And the grief of loneliness. I know you know that. And in some way, watching our suffering Savior can bring our own wounds to bear in these stories. It can feel like so much. Listen, the greatest argument that you are not alone in this world is Jesus willing to go to the cross with you on his mind. So when you hear the unjust cries of these crowds, 
And when you see the dust in his eyes and the blood on the ground, I want you to also see the heart of Jesus giving himself up because he loves you so much. That's what we're bearing witness to, the loving heart of Jesus for his people, but it's not all. We also see in these passages his great victory. The second to last thing he says right before he dies, we'll read this. Before he commends the spirit to the Father, he cried out, it is finished. And Matthew and Mark both record that he said that with a loud cry. How in the world, after all he had endured, he was able to summon up the strength to shout those words, I have no idea. But that cry, that is a cry of victory. It literally means it has been and forever will be finished. Deliberately, freely, and in perfect love, he has endured the judgment in our place and procured salvation for us. That's his victory. And at once, the curtain of the temple, which for centuries had symbolized the alienation of sinners from God, was torn in two from top to bottom in order to demonstrate that that barrier of sin that stands between us and God, God himself throws down forever, never to be, never to be resurrected again. And away into his presence, the presence we all long for, has now been opened. That, that's the victory we bear witness to tonight. I know you all have thoughts about whether I should have kept the rules and told Trent to go to sleep or not. But I'll tell you, I didn't make him wait. And the next face he made was a face I'll also never forget. I didn't have the heart for it, but I don't know how completely we should ever separate these things. A crucifixion and a resurrection. An atoning sacrifice and new life. But the face that Trent made when he realized that Aslam was alive again, visibly captured such joy in a way that only a child can. And I think, in a lot of ways, that he felt the, the, the fact that he felt deeply the weight of Aslan's death made the joy of his new life even sweeter. And that's what we're here to do tonight. To embrace the courage to feel with depth the weight of Christ's death and to remember that despite it all, Sunday is coming.